Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Oh, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can take a look at a case study involving borderline personality disorder that has an excitement-seeking component to it. So I'm going to refer to borderline personality disorder as BPD. Now, on occasion with BPD, we see that someone has a chronic feeling of emptiness. And sometimes when people have this, they try to satisfy that emptiness by thrill-seeking. And this often takes the form of short-term romantic relationships. So that's what I'm really looking at here in this particular case study. Now, a case study typically refers to a situation where a clinician documents their experiences in treating a client. They do this with the client's consent. Sometimes these are published in journals, which is where I found this particular case study. Now, the client in this case report is a single woman in her mid-30s. I will refer to her as Amber. Amber presented with a number of symptoms, so many, in fact, that the clinician who was treating her, the one who put together this case report, was alarmed. She presented with anxiety, depression, emotional dysregulation, trouble thinking clearly, relationship problems, and she indicated that she was unable to work. Amber described a traumatic experience when she was young and told the therapist she was extremely disturbed. Now, the clinician believed that Amber was trying to test his clinical skills. He suggested that Amber was trying to see if he would try to contain the panic. He believed her behavior was a desperate recreation of her past attempts to get people to help her. So essentially, she was trying to overwhelm the clinician and get him to understand how serious her problems were. So this is an interesting take on the situation. To see this, instead of just really understanding the problems and trying to understand what caused them, to see this kind of extra dimension, to believe that essentially Amber was trying to manipulate him a bit. I think this was a bit of a gamble, but as we see later in the case study, it turns out he may have been correct. The clinician approached the case of Amber psychodynamically. So he was trained in psychodynamic therapy. That therapy involves a lot of different elements, including drive theory and object relations. So there's a lot of meaningful components in childhood, at least in psychodynamic thought. So what happens to a person early is very important, and it's especially important for the development of personality. Now, it sounds as though this clinician had the option of continuing 
with the psychodynamic counseling or referring Amber to psychiatrists. It appears that he understood the psychiatrist would be providing a higher level of care. So they would treat clients with more severe presentations. This isn't a particularly unusual way of thinking about a clinical presentation. If a counselor is dealing with somebody who comes in for treatment and that presentation is severe and they can't quite figure out what's going on, sometimes they will refer to a psychiatrist hoping that medications that would be prescribed would help stabilize that client and make them more receptive to therapy, make the therapy have a better chance of working. So that's really his dilemma as this case starts off. He's not really sure if he should refer Amber to help her get stabilized or if he should just continue treatment using psychodynamic counseling. Now, the clinician chose an interesting strategy at this point, essentially deferring his decision about the course of treatment. He told Amber that she had conveyed a great deal of information about herself to him and that both of them should take some time to reflect on what was discussed. During the next meeting, they would decide how to proceed with treatment. The clinician seemed to be wary about overreacting. He believed Amber was trying to make him panic, so he resisted expressing too much concern. Even still, he was open to the idea of a referral. He just wanted more time to decide what to do. During the next session, we see that Amber described a number of serious concerns again. She expanded on her history of trauma. She expressed concern that she would not be able to look after her children, and she emphatically requested the clinician's help. The clinician empathized with her and indicated that he could tell that she was experiencing despair, confusion, and panic. He told her that he believed she was looking for somebody to take care of her. And even though she felt this way, it might represent a dysfunctional pattern in her life. Therefore, he recommended delaying the diagnosis of Amber and wanted to continue in the assessment phase. So essentially, just like the first session, he was trying to slow things down and figure out what was going on. He also seems suspect of Amber's motives or perhaps her unconscious patterns. But either way, again, we see he believes there might be some type of manipulation going on. Now, Amber seemed to receive this information well, but then continued talking about the severity of her distressing feelings. The clinician stood fast, and eventually Amber agreed to continue with assessment. So we see this clinician trying to stay calm and trying to promote the same feeling in Amber. Now, the assessment process ended up taking two months. It's described in the case report as being unusually long. Now, in my experience, insurance companies usually want a diagnosis within five sessions, but you can only provide a diagnosis when you have enough information to do so. So I like the fact that this clinician was willing to delay drawing conclusions, although, as I'll talk about later, I'm not sure he really needed to. Now, during this long assessment process, Amber appeared to meet all nine of the symptom criteria that we see with borderline personality disorder. And of course, only five of the nine are required for a diagnosis. Now with this diagnosis of BPD in place, the clinician looked at the research literature to see what the probability was the client would have a good treatment response to psychodynamic counseling. He was satisfied with her chances of making a meaningful recovery. So he offered her an initial treatment course of two sessions a week for a period of three months. I think this was a smart move by the clinician if a therapist doesn't have a lot of experience with borderline personality disorder, or even if they do, consulting the research literature is a good idea. The research always helps the clinician build a better treatment plan and to really think through the different options available for the different types of psychopathology that they're working with. Now, in the early sessions, Amber talked about how other clinicians who had treated her prior to this clinician had given her 
quite a bit of direct advice. The counselors offered their own opinions about what she should do. He started to believe that maybe the other clinicians had moved outside their optimal counseling strategies. Tempted by Amber's repeated pleas for help, she was constantly in crisis mode, desperate for them to intervene directly, and eventually she convinced them to do that. Interestingly, Amber was also critical of prior clinicians who did not give her direct advice, labeling them as unresponsive. So we start to see a theme emerging here. Now, I find this part interesting. I wouldn't have been so quick to assume the other clinicians approached any type of boundary violation or otherwise performed poorly. It's not unusual for clients with cluster B personality pathology to suggest that prior clinicians were ineffective or inappropriate. In a way, it kind of builds a sense of urgency from their current clinician. Like, I've never been treated by the right clinicians. None of them understood my problems or know what they're doing. You have to be the one that pays attention to me and helps me through this. So it really sets up the clinician to be a hero. So this tactic can really be manipulative. Amber became increasingly angry with the clinician because he attempted to explore her feelings of desperation as opposed to acting impulsively on her feelings and trying to help her through with a more direct route. So again, we see the clinician tried to stay calm and deliberate in his actions. He didn't want to rush into any particular type of intervention. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Now, at this point, we see that Amber became romantically involved with a man the clinician referred to as most unsuitable and dangerous. The clinician believed that Amber did this to get a response from him, from the clinician, a response he was unwilling to give her during her other desperate acts in session. Amber was upset with the clinician for suggesting that her involvement with this new romantic partner was related to her being angry with the clinician. The clinician recognized that Amber's romantic behavior was probably related to a fear of abandonment and the excitement of having a new relationship, which is why I'm surprised he thought that this behavior had anything to do with anger for him. It may have had something to do with that, but that's not the first place I would have gone in terms of how to conceptualize this particular behavior. It's not unusual for individuals with BPD to have a lot of short-term, exciting-type relationships. So I think it's kind of a bit of a leap to say it must have been because the client was angry with the clinician when you have that alternate explanation that I think suffices fairly well. Either way, though, I appreciate the theory. His theory was that Amber was having a negative reaction toward him, a fear of the clinician abandoning her. She was disappointed with the clinician and, of course, angry with him. She needed a remedy for these negative emotions, and seeking the unsuitable romantic partner temporarily alleviated those emotions. Again, that's his theory. A more likely explanation, of course, is that Amber simply engaged in these types of behavior 
regularly. She found an opportunity to begin an exciting relationship with somebody new, so she took advantage of that opportunity. Now, the new romantic relationship failed after becoming dangerous, and Amber returned to therapy feeling even worse. She told the clinician that she really liked the excitement of new sexual relationships. The clinician suggested that Amber was trying to recreate that new relationship feeling, that excitement, in the therapy sessions with him. Amber admitted that she was discussing these topics in part because she was hoping for some sort of response from the clinician. So he took a gamble by putting that out there, and it appears he was correct. Eventually, Amber connected with a reflection that indicated that she felt unlovable. So the clinician reflected that back, and she agreed with it. This was considered to be a breakthrough moment. Amber also acknowledged that she found therapy to be boring, empty, and dull, which I think is an interesting thing to say about therapy, right? And again, the clinician didn't just assume that was because he was boring or because he was doing something wrong. He assumed it was something that was coming from that feeling of emptiness that Amber had. I would think this is also a breakthrough moment, acknowledging that chronic feeling of emptiness and how it extends into therapy sessions and how Amber was desperately seeking to escape that feeling by replacing it with exciting experiences. So after this, Amber was now amenable to the idea of refraining from new intimate relationships and attempting to spend time alone. Spending time alone was actually pretty difficult for Amber. The analogy that they used in this relationship was that she was withdrawing from substances. So it was like an addiction. Amber desired to go back to those exciting relationships, and she did so on several occasions, the equivalent of a relapse. But overall, she moved toward spending more time by herself. When she was by herself, she referred to that time as boring nothingness. The clinician continued to treat Amber for 18 months, so clearly it was extended beyond that three-month initial treatment period. The client returned to college. She was able to tolerate time alone better. She was largely able to avoid these exciting short-term romantic relationships, although not completely. Her self-esteem had increased, mood swings were less pronounced, and she also seemed more capable and thoughtful. But she still had feelings of emptiness, abandonment, and loss. In the end, the clinician concluded that the other therapists that Amber had been with had been unable to maintain consistent and stable boundaries with her. As I mentioned before, I would not have jumped to that conclusion that boundaries were violated previously, but I do believe that holding the boundary in place for the 18 months Amber was in therapy was beneficial to her. So what are my thoughts about this case? It's important to note that the clinician who wrote the case report had the best view in terms of the client and had access to information, of course, that was not included in the report. I'm only speculating about what could be happening in a case like this from what I see in the report. So a few things did stand out for me, though. Taking one's time with the assessment, as I mentioned, I think was a smart move, but I'm not sure there was a need to delay the diagnosis in this case. Did delaying the diagnosis actually help the client? When a diagnosis is that clear, wouldn't it be better just to assign it at that time? In most situations, the time to make the diagnosis is when you know enough of the symptom criteria have been endorsed and you've ruled out other possible explanations. The clinician could have stayed in the assessment phase, even with the diagnosis in place. It's not like when a clinician issues a diagnosis, they have to say, okay, that's it. Now we must move on to the treatment phase, right? They can certainly stay in assessment. They're allowed to keep assessing and they may change their mind. They may look at that original diagnosis and think, that really doesn't explain the presentation too well, or they may add more diagnoses. Maintaining the boundary was really key in this case report. When we talk about boundaries and counseling, 
we usually think of a situation where the clinician gets too close to a client. Although, of course, often those are considered the most serious violations, those aren't the only type of boundary violation. It can also be a boundary violation when a therapist moves too far away. They become too distant. And that's what happens on occasion when counselors treat cluster B personality pathology. They move away from the client. They become frustrated with the client's behavior. In a sense, they may lose hope for the client. They start to dread the client showing up for a session. All those things are boundary violations too. So it's not just moving too close, it's also moving too far away. Maintaining the boundary is about keeping the right distance. It's about staying in that area that's appropriate and helpful for the client. And this clinician was able to do that. The next takeaway here, the therapist was able to avoid being highly reactive to Amber's reports of distress. This, of course, runs the risk of appearing cold, calculating, and uncaring. But by doing so, he was able to avoid the vicious cycle of continually trying to fix the problem. I've seen this happen many times with cluster B personality disorders, and specifically with borderline personality disorder. The clinician ends up using all the session time to put out the proverbial fire. They believe intervening is the natural outcome of empathy. So if they're empathizing, it means they must do something clinically. They must do something in terms of a technical skill to help the client feel better. In a sense, they start to believe that you can't empathize without doing something else. And what happens is they never get to work on the larger insight-based issues. They're always putting out the fires and never getting to what's causing the fires. Everything stays on the surface. Every session seems to be evaluated independently. What did we accomplish today? As opposed to looking at the larger picture of good days and bad days, good mood and bad mood, success and failure. This clinician was able to step back and see the larger pattern. And of course, personality disorders are a pervasive pattern of maladaptive behavior. So seeing the pattern is key for treating personality disorders. This clinician was not distressed by the repeated failures. He wasn't distressed by the client being angry with him, and he was able to hold to his course of treatment. Sometimes therapy is two steps forward and one step backward, and not every clinician can tolerate that process. The next takeaway here is that Amber presented with a variety of problems, again, so many that the clinician was almost overwhelmed, but good progress was made. She was able to resist short-term romantic relationships. Now, this was probably safer in her situation, as most of the relationships she had became destructive for her. This didn't seem to be a primary concern, though, in the beginning, but later on, we see it becomes important for her. It's important to recognize that addictive behavior doesn't always take the form of substance use, and how excitement-seeking in various forms can become destructive. This pattern of seeking out the thrill of new romantic relationships is not only seen with borderline personality disorder, but with all of the cluster B personality disorders, so antisocial, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorders as well. Therefore, it's really not surprising that all of the cluster B personality disorders have a high level of comorbidity with substance use disorder. Moving on to the next area where we see improvement, we see fewer mood swings here. No doubt this was positive. This is one of her initial complaints. This is also one of the symptom criteria for BPD, affective instability. We see an increased level of self-esteem. Interestingly, the research literature is mixed about whether self-esteem is actually helpful, but I can see how the client would find having more self-esteem to be encouraging. Now, even with all these improvements, we see that Amber still has the fear of abandonment and the feeling of emptiness, right? So those symptoms remain. 
So the question here really is, Amber may have improved, but did she improve enough to discontinue therapy? The client made the decision to discontinue therapy here, again, after 18 months. My hope would be that that decision was made collaboratively, so the therapist and Amber making it together. But it's not clear from the case report if that's what happened in this situation. Amber could have been ready to discontinue treatment, so it may have been appropriate to do so, but she also could have been feeling like she should discontinue treatment. So not really knowing, but feeling that because of some of the personality disorder symptoms. With BPD, I typically recommend that someone stays connected to outpatient therapy over the long run. Maybe not twice weekly, like we saw here, but perhaps once every two weeks, once a month. I'm not sure it's a great idea to go from twice weekly to no therapy. That seems a bit of a jump, right? That's kind of an abrupt shift in what the client would be expecting on a weekly basis. So twice a week for 18 months to not seeing the clinician at all. So that's an adjustment I think that probably should have been made. But again, Amber might've said, I'm done. I don't want to continue. And therefore that would be it. So this is an interesting case study. We see here how BPD can have this excitement-seeking component that can take the form of these short-term physical relationships. And those relationships can become addicting. They can be something that masks the pain, makes the client feel better, but in the end, they're still destructive. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media, all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevitz. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.